0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In three, two, one. Seven
1: things
0: you don't really need to know, but probably should. I'm Jamie Easton. This, this is the Sunday Sun.
1: It's Olivia, in for Jamie this week. In today's episode, we enter the bizarre world of AI art. The mites that live in our pores are facing extinction, and researchers are harnessing the power of P. But first, it was on this day in 1894 that German engineer Karl Benz received a US patent for gasoline-driven automobile. If you've spent any time on the internet recently, you may have stumbled upon a number of surreal yet realistic images of situations you never thought you'd see. For weeks now, threads of absurd, hilarious, and sometimes creepy, AI-generated images have been taking over our Twitter timelines. Here at The Smart Seven, we've seen images of Darth Vader ice fishing, Jesus Christ on fire break dancing, and babies at daycare operating a Fisher-Price guillotine. (laughs) And the artist bringing life to all these preposterous situations is the open source AI called Dali. The name Dali is a portmanteau of the surrealist painter Salvador Dali and the Pixar animated film WALL-E. It takes text prompts and generates images from them. In January 2021, OpenAI introduced the first version of the tool, but the second version, which entered a private research beta in April, is a huge leap forward.
0: DALI was created by training a neural network on images and their text descriptions. Through deep learning, it not only understands individual objects, like koala bears and motorcycles, but learns from relationships between objects.
1: So, when you ask DALI for an image of a koala bear riding a motorcycle, it knows exactly how to create it and it looks just like you would imagine it in your mind. And that's not all. DALI 2 can also realistically edit and retouch photos. Based on a simple natural language description, it can fill in or replace part of an image with AI-generated imagery that blends seamlessly with the original. It is both terrifying and fascinating. Creating worlds out of words, Aditya Ramesh is an AI researcher at OpenAI, the umbrella company that developed DALI. Speaking with the This Week in Tech podcast in April... He seems confident that Dali can be part of a future where AI is a safe
0: part of our lives. One of the goals of OpenAI is to develop artificial general intelligence and release it in a way that's both safe and maximally beneficial to humanity. You know, humans don't just work with text. We're also very visual and a lot of what's important to us in the world is is given in the form of images. And so Dali is kind of both a step in that direction but also a step in the direction of figuring out as we develop more power, powerful models, what kind of interfaces should be designed for people to use them? Because as time moves forward, both society and AI will kind of evolve and co-adapt with feedback from one kind of channeling research and research resulting in better interfaces and more powerful interfaces for people to work together with AI.
1: And as handy as this tool is, what does this mean for the people who make a living from their artistic creations? Mario Klingerman is one of these artists and he shared his views with Vox.
0: If 10,000 people have access to that same model, will I still be able to make something that then somebody will want to buy? Or don't they want to rather get their own account and make their own images? And why buy my art when you can just find something probably rather similar?
1: For now, Dali feels like a breakthrough in the history of consumer tech, But as AI advancements come along in leaps and bounds, we are still venturing into the unknown. Between deep fakes, deceptive voice augmentation, and now a tool that can seemingly create images out of thin air, there are clearly ethical questions that we as a society need to consider. What happens when these tools end up in the wrong hands? And should we be worried about our AI future? Ted Underwood is a professor at the University of Illinois, and he puts it finally.
0: We are on a voyage here that is, it's a bigger deal than, than just like one decade or the immediate technical consequences. It's a change in the way humans imagine, communicate, work with their own culture, and that will have long range good and bad consequences that we, we are just by definition not gonna be capable of completely anticipating.
1: year, people arrive at base camp in Nepal to fulfill a lifelong dream, to climb Mount Everest, the highest peak in the world. What was once only achievable by elite mountaineers has now become accessible to thousands of tourists and climbers from all over the world. And that's the problem. Human activity coupled with global warming is having a detrimental effect on Everest's ecosystem, making the ascent unsafe. At an altitude of 5,364 metres above sea level, Base camp lies at the Khumbu Glacier. Scientists are now warning that the glacier is melting at an alarming rate by as much as one metre every year. Kul Bahadur Gurung is part of the Nepal Mountaineering Association and shed his concerns with Al Jazeera.
0: It's issue of melting glacier and the crevasses. Uh, so a bit worrying that maybe in 10 years, you know, we, there'll be no more glacier and crevasses.
1: Climbers and Sherpas say cracks and crevasses appear overnight, and it's putting their lives at risk. Melting ice is also causing rock falls, which can trigger avalanches in the Himalayas. In an attempt to protect the natural environment, the Nepalese government has decided to move Everest's base camp to a new location around 300 metres lower, where there's no year-round ice.
0: Certainly, this is the right time to advocate and raise the boys together. And not only talk or raise the boys, uh, we need to sort it out. So, uh, yeah, our base camp has been very congested. And every year, but definitely, there are more than 1,500 people, so the human waste has been uh, polluted.
1: Around 4,000 litres of urine is dumped at base camp every day. And because climbers spend weeks on the peak adjusting to the altitude, they generate several kilos of waste, most of which is left on the mountain, from empty canisters to abandoned camping equipment. All of this has created a moral and environmental debate on the human obsession to scale the tallest mountain in the world. Still to come on The Sunday Seven, our tiny mites have a mighty problem and scientists discover a plastic-eaten worm. The tiny mites that have sex on our faces have a problem. Yep, you heard that right. Deep inside our pores live tiny little creatures that rely on us to survive. Around 90% of us are hosts to these poor cleaning mites, but they're facing a bit of an issue. A new study has found that the mites' DNA is eroding. To find out more and what this means, we spoke to the co-author of the study, Dr Alejandra Parotti from the University of Reading. Hi Alejandra, thanks for joining us today. So
0: to start off, where did these mites come from and why do they live in our skin? Somehow they adapted to live in the human skin and they became follicular mites. Humans, we can carry two species. One is the modex folliculorum, the one we studied, and the other is the modex brevis, that is smaller and less numerous. They got adapted to live inside the follicles, inside the pores of the mammal skin. The tip of your nose is a preferential uh, location for them. We have normally uh, an interesting number of mites living on our noses, um, but they are in other parts of the body. Uh, they are uh, associated with the nipples and this is related to the transmission. We receive them from our mothers. Your mites come from your mom. Should we be worried that we have all these mites all over us? Not at all. They accompany us since we are humans. All true mammals, those that have the mammalian gland and the sebaceous gland, that is in the pores, have follicular mites. They are called follicular mites because they live in the follicles of the
1: skin. It's so strange to think that we have tiny mites living in our skin. Have you seen your own? Of
0: course. You can imagine how many times I look at my mites. (laughs) So what's the problem facing the mites now? What we found is as a process of the evolutionary process of adaptation to live inside the pore. They have a very reduced uh, genome or repertoire of genes. They lose the genes because they don't use them, because they don't need to use them, because they live inside this restricted environment of the pore. They get protection inside the pore. Food, they feed on secretions that happen inside the pores. They keep our pores clean and unplugged. So, uh, in this process of, of adaptation, they have lost many sheens. This process continues and these mites will lose shins that are very important for repairs. And this means that they go towards an evolutionary end and uh, will become extinct. This is the first time that this process is seen in an animal. Most people have had these mites for
1: basically all their lives. So what happens if they become extinct and we lose them? Everybody
0: asks me that. I have no idea. (laughs) The mites cannot live outside our skin. They can no longer escape that. So if you try to remove them and to make them live on another skin, for example, or another uh, substratum, they will die. However, have in mind that There are studies, previous and recent studies that um, found that there are some different populations of mites on on different hosts around the world, in different regions of the world, and they might be evolving in different ways. I hope this uh, helps for people to, to appreciate them in a different way, the way they deserve, because they are our only companions, it's the only animal that live together with us throughout our whole life. We, if we don't know about this, we live happily. Everyone has the mites. Healthy skin, people with healthy skin all have the mites. So I hope it changes a little bit the view people have of these mites. And some of them learn now that they have mites on the skin.
1: Scientists from Australia's University of Queensland have discovered that a type of beetle larvae can digest plastic. The enzymes produced in the gut bacteria of these larvae are able to break down polystyrene. Whilst this might not be the most nutritious of meals, Researchers like microbiologist Christian Rinker said that the larvae can survive eating polystyrene alone.
0: It shreds the polystyrene, eats it, and then basically uh, feeds the bacteria in the gut. And what we have shown is that the bacteria have enzymes encoded that can degrade the polystyrene. So as you mentioned, uh, what we believe is happening, is kind of a symbiotic relationship, right? The worm first shreds the polystyrene in smaller parts, and then the microbes then are chemically or basically use the enzymes degraded
1: shorter. The scientists hope to eventually engineer the enzyme to better degrade plastic waste. Still to come on the Sunday Seven, how human urine could be a sustainable answer to healthier crops and a huge fresh water find in Cambodia.
0: Right after this. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices You're listening to the Sunday 7. Follow us for your weekday news espresso or even try our island edition. It's in all the usual places.
1: What if human waste could be used to grow food? That's exactly what a group of researchers are hoping to do. With your urine. Researchers around the world have been looking into the use of pea as a nutrient-rich, chemical-free fertiliser. This could be groundbreaking considering the shortage of fertilisers that's occurring due to the ongoing war in Ukraine. Analysts at Rabobank have said that Russia exports 20% of the world's nitrogen fertilisers, whilst Belarus is responsible for 40% of the world's potassium. Combined with the sanctions placed on Russia, farmers around the world have had their supply virtually cut off. Abraham Noe Hayes is the founder of Rich Earth Institute. It's a nonprofit that's been investigating and developing alternative waste management solutions for decades. For Abraham, using urine as fertilizer is the obvious choice. It's
0: It's a sustainably produced, it's already being produced, it's a waste product that we can recycle repurpose into fertilizer. If you use synthetic fertilizer, nitrogen fertilizer requires natural gas for its production, and that's a non-renewable resource. And the, uh, the phosphorus fertilizer is from a mined resource, rock phosphate, and that's a limited resource as well.
1: To grow, plants need nutrients like nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. When we eat, we ingest these nutrients before excreting them out again, mostly through urine. Along with all those lovely nutrients, we also path pathogens and pharmaceuticals, which would need to be removed in order to protect our water systems. Researchers at the University of Michigan are now developing techniques to safely use urine to fertilise food crops. And they hope to do it on a large scale. Rebecca Lahr is an engineering assistant professor who's been part of the pea cycling movement.
0: I want to be part of the solution, right? Uh, I spent a lot of time detecting things that are wrong with our water systems. But this project is really targeting a solution, something that we can do to improve the water quality. If we can get the pharmaceuticals out and the nutrients out sooner, um, then maybe we wouldn't have water bodies that you know, have algal blooms and, and fish kills.
1: As Abraham puts it.
0: Um, there's no doubt that urine can be a safe fertilizer for growing any kind of crop.
1: So the question is, Are we ready to P-Cycle? The historic scientific breakthrough that helped lead the world's fight against COVID-19 through mRNA vaccines is being commemorated through an NFT. The digital asset was designed by the University of Pennsylvania and Dr. Drew Weissman. He was the scientist who pioneered the mRNA modification technology, which was used in both the Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna vaccines.
0: What's included in the NFT is an incredible animated video that demonstrates how the mRNA platform works, as well as a storyboard that explains what's depicted but probably most importantly is kind of what it symbolizes. And really, it's a type of modified mRNA that was pioneered here at Penn that really helped pave the way for the certain mRNA-based COVID vaccines. And increasingly, it's viewed as one of the world's greatest scientific achievements. That
1: was Craig Carnaroli, Executive Vice President of the University. The non-fungible token is set to be auctioned by Christie's in July and proceeds will go to support further research at the University of Pennsylvania. A giant stingray discovered in the Mekong River in Cambodia might be the largest freshwater fish ever recorded. The giant stingray measured almost 400 metres from snout to tail and weighed slightly under 300 kilograms. The previous record for a freshwater fish was a 293-kilogram Mekong giant catfish discovered in Thailand in 2005. So this stingray simply blows it out of the water. It was caught, recorded and then released back into the river by a team of American and Cambodian researchers and fishermen. Zeb Hogan is a fish biologist who shared his thoughts with Reuters.
0: So this is very exciting. It's very exciting news uh, because it was the world's largest fish. It's also very exciting news because it means that this stretch of the Mekong is still healthy. We hear a lot of stories about all the problems with the Mekong River, but this this is actually a sign of hope that these huge fish still live in the Mekong.
1: The research team named the fish Boromi, which translates to full moon.
0: This world's largest fish was the first fish that the team tagged and released back into the river. And that means for the next year, we'll be able to track its movements to learn about the stingray's life. Giant freshwater stingray, they haven't been well studied. We know almost nothing about them. So this is a real opportunity to learn more about one of the world's largest freshwater fish. This has been the Sunday 7. Wherever you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with the regular Smart 7. Have a great rest of your weekend. Written, produced and published by Daft Dog.